Hi, I'm Allison. And I'm Sandhya. And this is The Universal Grain, a podcast where we, two Generation Z Asian American teenagers, strive to share our perspectives by exploring issues that not only affect us, but our audience as well. This week, we'll be looking at wealth inequality and more specifically in the context of the Biden presidency and in terms of housing. First off, I think it's important that we define what wealth inequality is. So wealth refers to the total amount of assets of an individual or or a household, and this may include financial assets such as bonds and stocks, um, property, and private pension rights. And when we talk about wealth inequality, this therefore means the unequal distribution of assets within a group of people. And so wealth inequality is not a recent issue. It's been an issue of America's for um, more than a decade. And the only reason that it has recently come to light is uh, we've had multiple current presidents attempt to um, address the issue, and a lot of controversy has sprung from that. And so in the past three decades, the medium income has increased by 41% um, to $70,800 at an annual average rate of 1.2% for the middle class. And a lot of this um, wealth inequality is driven by technological change, globalization, um, the decline of unions, and the eroding value of the minimum wage. And so this growth in income has more tilted towards upper upper income households. And at the same time, the US middle class, um, the clear majority of Americans is shrinking. And so a greater share of the nation's income is now going to upper income households and the share to lower middle income households is falling. Ali said that there is an eroding minimum wage. And while the value of the minimum wage has gone up, the standard of living, the cost for, you know, to have a a decent life in America has gone up as well. So it really, it's like butting heads. When you increase the minimum wage, you also have to ensure that the standard of living is accessible with the minimum wage. And that's the problem that's happening. And that's also because of globalization and all this technology and everything, it's becoming extremely expensive, which Ali said. And when we talk about, um, as Sonia talks about that minimum wage, that gap, we can see that, you know, as she has said, the minimum wage increases, but that not only affects lower income households, that also affects upper income ones. And so that distance between social classes remains the same. And it, it's almost like a band-aid to a larger issue. And we can especially see that um, among white and black citizens in America, the median US household, there um, in the year 1970, there was around a $20,000 difference. And in the end, in 2018, there was around a $30,000 difference. In the grand scheme of things, these numbers truly only show that, you know, the problems that we're attempting to fix haven't quite changed as drastically as we've talked about. So with that basic understanding of wealth inequality, we know that housing and assets is included in that. Um, And there's recently been some news about housing with the Biden administration. So it was reported on April 13th that the Department of Housing and Urban Development submitted a draft a draft version of the fair housing rules to the Office of Management and Budget for review. Um, so that's basically shorthand. They want to change something. It comes like after Joe Biden has um, really said to the department that he wants to review all of the rules that were that were changed or that were made to the Fair Housing Act or to the proceedings of the department in general during the Trump administration. And so you might be asking what the Fair Housing Act is. So the Fair Housing Act was a branch 
of the Civil Rights Act. And the Civil Rights Act was passed during uh, Lyndon B. Johnson's um, presidency in the 1960, in 1960s. Um, and so it was known as the Fair Housing Act, and it was a term often used um, to describe the entire bill, which prohibited discrimination concerning the sale, rental, and financing of housing based on race, religion, national origin, and sex. So basically, it was essentially applying the Civil Rights Act into housing because they realized how discriminatory and how segregated housing was. Off the bat, it kind of sounds like the 14th Amendment for housing, but it was really hard. It, it And it still happens today. Housing is segregated. Housing is inherently classist because the market is so expensive. Low income people cannot get into the market. But so aside from the tangent, um, Joe Biden wants cities to put more apartment buildings and multifamily unit units, such as uh, converted garages or anything like that in areas traditionally zoned for single family housing. So this is really helpful to low income families who are especially struggling at this time, um, who might've been evicted because they couldn't pay the rent during COVID to have an opportunity to you know, house their family again. And it's part of his $2.3 trillion infrastructure plan. And cities would allow for smaller lots and for apartment buildings with fewer than six units to be built next to a traditional house. And this also has actually been shown to like highlight the the subtle fault lines in the Democratic base because middle income Democratic voters are actually kind of worried about this bill because they are building low income housing units next to you know their their houses. It's going to devalue their house a little bit, and that's really scary for some middle class people or high income people. Um, because the housing market is so expensive right now, it's really a, it's a good time to sell. Um, and they're afraid that that value is going to, they're going to lose their opportunity. So aside from that, if you, if you take away that part, you know, if you look at it from just a utilitarian perspective, this really needs to happen. I mean, housing, we see in a modern world, housing needs to be a universal right. Like it, and so the housing market really needs to be open to them. And I think that Biden's plan is sort of getting there. We're getting there with his plan. And it's really important that we do. And I think this can also contribute a bit to wealth inequality, although, you know, we can't say the issue as a whole will be solved by Biden, you know, expanding housing for um, lower income families. But I think it's definitely a way to uh, get people to get started and help you know, lower that gap. And I think there's a lot of misconception around, oh, you're poor, like, just get a job. Like, no, sadly, our society doesn't let us do that. You know, we tend to make the rich richer, and we tend to take more from the poor, because we see that we can take more from them. And so I think that this is definitely a step forward. Um, and of course, as Sonia said, there's always upsides and downsides um, to those middle income families that already have their lives established somewhere. I think it's important balance of, you know, right and wrong, good and bad. On the issue of politicians, I don't think we can talk about wealth inequality without talking about cronyism. And so cronyism uh, generally means gaining narrow, narrow government benefits through lobbying or connections. And the word cronyism is similar in meaning to, you know, crony capitalism, corruption, corporate welfare, and rent seeking. It usually entails businesses gaining benefits at the expense of consumers or taxpayers. And so oftentimes, um, a lot of this wealth inequality can be contributed to this. If we look at, you know, we say Jeff Bezos, uh, I think there was a thing that like Amazon doesn't pay any taxes. 
And I guess that could also be considered as cronyism and just kind of that exploitation of the system that much of the general population doesn't have access to. Um, and in a 2019 poll, um, it was found that the great majority of Americans surveyed think that there's nothing wrong with a person trying to make as much money as they can honestly. Um, keyword honestly. I think it's lucrative in nowadays to you know, try to exploit the government and increase wealth, which leads to you know, the wealth inequality gap as we're talking about. Um, and there are many situations where the government helps businesses raise their profits by, by imposing an absurd tax or burden on the public and such crony policies likely raise the wealth inequality. And so when we talk about um, Adam Smith, he talks a lot about capitalism and the invisible hand um, he described how 18th century trade barriers create a monopoly for power and producers and harm consumers. And so this issue clearly isn't one of current politicians, but it certainly has been exemplified by that and the power that current politicians have. And so there's different types of cronyism. There's expanding sales, um, reducing competition, tilting the playing field, um, what they call riding the gravy train, escape failure, hijack benefits, and get others to pay. And there's so many other ways that um, businesses come to do this, but it ultimately takes away from the consumer. And I think it's really important that like it's stressed that this has been going on for a long time. I feel like cronyism can perfectly describe President Grant, all of his uh, corruption, like the whiskey ring, mm -hmm. all of that kind of stuff. Um, even in like more recent times during like the 1990s and like 2000, early 2000s with like the deregulation during the globalization period, like Congress just like pulled back and they they pulled back on like the banking regulations and company regulations and so there were bank commercial banks investing in mortgages and then there was also like Enron who was they were corrupt and so it's really it's really hard to have an equal system and to ensure that everyone is able to have what they need and you know to live the the basic the most basic like humane life possible when wealth and the decisions and you know governmental like the government and economy that like relationship is only commented on and controlled by the select few who really don't know like what you know lower income people go through they're so incredibly privileged that it kind of creates this kind of tunnel vision I don't think that they have the the humanitarian or utilitarian um, perspective in mind when they're making decisions, largely because corporate greed just can really affect someone's viewpoint. Um, on the opposite end of that, if we talk about um, cronyism on a larger scale, there is often an argument that comes from the left that this type of behavior, you know, undermines democracy and whatnot. Um, and I think it's important to address that, you know, the pre the pre preferences of the wealthy are different. Um, and, you know, sometimes they are followed by policymakers, and oftentimes they are, but, you know, when we look at it, oftentimes they're also not, you know, when we talk about elections, yes, money plays a big part, but it's ultimately, or at least in theory, votes that choose the winner. And it appears that money doesn't buy elections, and, and wealthy self funded candidates often do poorly. So let's, when we talk about Donald Trump, so he won the presidency promising trade protectionism, um, unreformed entitlement programs, reducing immigration, and putting conservative judges in courts. And, you know, none of those positions are particularly popular among the wealthy. 
However, Trump does support deregulate, deregulation and tax cuts, which the wealthy have a relative preference for. Um, but looking at the data, interestingly, not one CEO of the Fortune 100 had donated to Trump's election campaign by September 2016. And so his victory didn't stem from the influence of the wealthy, but more from the grassroots opposition to wealthy coastal elites. And so I guess in short, this means that the rich have a less direct influence on electoral outcomes or policy platforms than commonly believed. So in a 2017 study, um, there was a look at policy outcomes based on issues where a majority of middle class and rich um, disagree. And so in this situation, the rich got their way 53% of the time, while the middle class got their way 47% of the time. I guess uh, from different perspectives, it is a large and a small gap. And so when we look at this over a 22 year extended period, that means the rich got their way, you know, 11 times more than the middle class did. So again, it I, I think that it's important to note that wealth inequality is such a complex issue and it also ties into so many other things and so many other social ills that we see today. And I like I would just like to go back to housing for a minute because housing discrimination and wealth inequality leading to the disparities in housing really affects like more than just, you know, where you live. So we've seen actually housing discrimination for a very long time, as we mentioned. One specific example is that in, in the 1950s, this was when like all of the suburbs were, were really coming into fruition and it, it was like this white picket fence craze. And these suburbs were built, but the realtors and the housing developers, racism was still very prevalent at the time. So there was complete segregation. Blacks and uh, BIPOC people were forced into urban ghettos really, uh, that's where in the in the Great Depression, that's where the housing was built to help them. And they really weren't able to leave because they also were f- facing employment discrimination. So it wasn't like they had a wage or anything to really um, be able to like buy these really these these houses that were expensive. But even the suburb ones who that were for the middle class uh, realtors would do this thing called blockbusting, where basically if one BIPOC family moved in, they would try to sell the whole lot um, of white people because they didn't want integration. Even housing developers, there was this one suburbia basically where it was developed all by one company. It was called Levittown in the 1950s. They actually, it, it took someone to sue them for them to start opening up their housing market to uh, BIPOC people. Aside from that active discrimination, the wealth inequality that has like racial undertones because there is employment discrimination and there is systemic racism that prevents certain BIPOC groups from, you know, achieving the success or having the security in whether it be in in their life, in wealth, in their job um, that a white person would, it affects the housing market. And the housing market can dictate a lot. It can dictate like how your children grow up. It can dictate the type of education they get. It can dictate the basic facilities in the area. When property taxes are used from a certain area to fund the maintenance and public infrastructure in that area. If you're inherently segregating areas by class, by wealth, by race, it's going to produce very segregated outcome. Uh, Like maybe white a white suburbia would not have the crisis that Flint, Michigan did, because that um, area is significantly low income and significantly black. They might not have enough property taxes to to maintain the water and their education system like 
another person would. And even public funding, property taxes or whatever for that city, funding into education, that is such a big issue. The quality of education is going to be so different. And that also affects your life in moving forward. It affects your child's life. So it really isn't an equal playing field. And you can see that wealth inequality and just discrimination in general, whether it be based on race, sex, uh, income status, whatever it be, it ties into so many other things and it affects so many generations down the line. The um, There have been several efforts to change it that I think we need to you know, appreciate too. The Fair Housing Act, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, the Community Reinvestment Act, but these really aren't direct change. And obviously it's very hard to attack such a complicated and intricate um, so deeply rooted issue, but we we need to find a way um, and we need to, you know, get rid of the any corporate greed or any selfish, um, selfish need and really look at it from a utilitarian perspective and really hear all sides, because I don't think democracy is being acknowledged when it comes to wealth. There are extremely wealthy people in government and involved in government but there isn't so much action between, you know, lower income brackets. We talked a lot about historical perspectives today, and we thought we'd bring that trend through um, into our rice of the episode. And so this episode, we are talking about a Korean dish called yaksik, um, excuse my pronunciation. Um, it was first mentioned in the memorabilia of the three kingdoms. Uh, and it talks about when King Soji, the 21st king of Celia, uh, went on a picnic and encountered a crow and a mouse. And so the mouse told the king um, in a human language to follow the crow. And so the king, you know, found this strange and ordered a servant to follow the crow. And so the crow led him to a pond and then an old man appeared out of the pond. And the old man gave the servant an envelope on it, which was written, two, two people will die if you open this. If you don't open it, only one person will die. Um, and so, you know, the, at first the king thought it would be better not to open the envelope because that would mean it would only cost one person's life. But he changed his mind when the servant said that the envelope referred to the king himself. And so then the king opened the envelope and he found a letter that said, uh, go back to the palace and shoot an arrow into the box that holds a six string zither. And then so he follows the, letter the letter's instructions um, and when he shoots the arrows into the box, he finds two people behind it bleeding to death. And so it was actually a monk and a concubine who were hiding behind the box ready to kill the king. And so the king then said that day each year as a day in which people should you know, pay thanks to the crow for saving the king's life and order the people to create a right and cook food for the crows made out of rice, chestnuts, and jujubes, um, which the bird liked. And so, which lead us to yaksik. And so yaksik is a sweet, you know, Korean dish made from steaming glutinous rice and mixing it with chestnuts, jujubes, pine nuts. And it's seasoned with honey or brown sugar, sesame oil, you know, sometimes soy sauce or cinnamon. And so it is traditionally eaten on this holiday, um, which falls on the 15th of January in the lunar calendar, but it's also eaten during um, weddings and festivals. Um, this dish looks really yummy to me. It reminds me a lot of, um, you know, traditional Chinese dishes um, that we would like dip in sugar. Um, and yeah, uh, we want to thank you all so much for listening and we hope you learned something and we'll see you next time. <laughs>